Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter, Gabe Dowrick. Hello, Ben. Hey, Gabe. Hi, Ben. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about an ordinary man who becomes a reality TV star when his life is filmed 24 hours per day. It's The Truman Show versus Ed TV. Let the reality games begin. So as usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. Back on the 5th of June, 1998, The Truman Show was released. And here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. An insurance salesman discovers his whole life is actually a reality TV show. Short, succinct. So Gabe, tell me, did you originally catch The Truman Show when it was released at the cinema? And what was that experience like for you? I did. I saw it at my buddy Ben's, I don't know, 14th or 15th birthday. Uh, whoa, whoa. You got other buddies called Ben? Uh, in fact- What's going on here? What's going on here? In fact, I only have friends called Ben. <laughs> it's, it's a perfectly carefully curated uh, list that I've been working on my entire life. If your name ain't Ben, I ain't interested. So I'm like Ben version four, right? <laughs> uh, I actually, look, I don't want to- I, I didn't really think that we'd be doing this like uh, live, but Ben, you're actually Ben 16. I'm sorry, Ben. <laughs> it's like that movie where basically when, a, when a Ben reaches the age of 21, he's killed. Yes, that's right. Uh, what's that movie called? What's uh, Logan's Run? I lay my eggs in them. <laughs> so walk me through uh, when you first saw it with Ben number two or one. Actually, this was Ben one. I, I'd, I'd known Ben one since I was uh, eight years old or something. Anyway, it was it Ben, I don't know, yeah, 14th or 15th birthday and we saw it at the Randwick Ritz. Uh, this was before, uh, what do you call it? What's, what do you call it when you can, when you book a ticket and the seats are, you pick your seats? What's that called? Uh, reserved. <laughs> oh yeah, that's good. That's good. I know words good. Before reserved seating, I think we rolled up to the cinema late because, you know, you try, uh, corralling, you know, like 10, 14 year olds anyway, but because we were just like little kids, I'm pretty sure we snuck to the front of the line, bought tickets straight in and, uh, Watch the film. And I've also seen this movie a number of times uh, since I believe I own it on DVD because it is very good and I like it. Anyway, that's that's where I saw it as a kid in the cinema uh, at a birthday party. Oh, I love these stories of you watching these movies with 10 other 13 or 14-year-olds. And the funny thing is I've heard that story a few times from you and this is, the, I guess, the age gap between us because – the correlating story with me is this falls into that famous time when I was seeing free movies at the cinema when I worked at the cinema. So, again, clearly a lot of movies in the late 90s that were based on the same idea coming out at the same time. Like, if we were to graph this, I feel like between perhaps 97 and 2000, there are more twin movies than at any other time. Do, Do you have the same feel? Maybe, but maybe we're also just drawn to movies that were made within this period because it provides a uh, a comfort to us, a throwback to a halcyon uh, time in our lives. 
Yeah, totally. We always talk about the best movies for us are the ones like music, right? The ones that you experienced at a certain window of time in your childhood or young adult years. And a lot of these movies that I saw in the late 90s tick the nostalgia box, tick the twin movies description, and are very rewatchable. Uh, so The Truman Show I myself saw for the first time in the cinema, a uh, free movie, I think I might have even seen it twice, but I also remember it really well because we actually studied this in film studies. And ordinarily at uni, when you study a film in a film theory course, it's usually had to have been out for 10, 20, 30 years to be deemed a classic. And I remember at the time when I was doing film studies in the mid-90s, I think it was like 97, 98, we studied Pulp Fiction. And that was kind of revolutionary because that film was only three years you know, old at that age. And often just the snobbishness of unis is that something has to be old first before it can be considered objectively good. And this was interesting because we studied this basically as it came out at the cinema. I can't recall why. I don't think it was about being prophetic in terms of it uh, forecasting the evolution of reality TV or social media. Um, But maybe there was an element of that. But I think I then saw this film subsequently several times on VHS you know, in terms of writing an essay and so on. So this film really is locked in my brain. I feel like I know almost every scene. But when I first saw it, I just saw it like an average person at the movies and uh, and loved it. Wow, so you, you studied this. I'm expecting some great insight from you about it then. Oh, yeah. The scholar has come here to deliver. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. All right. Now let's, let's talk anti-intellectual and jump to... EdTV, ooh, uh, shots fired. Fair. So later on, on the 26th of March, 1999, EdTV was released, and here's its synopsis from IMDb. A video store clerk agrees to have his life filmed by a camera crew for a television show 24 hours a day. So, Gabe, I dread to hear this story. Uh, were you with a group of 10, 14-year-olds when you first watched EdTV, and was it at the movies? Uh, no, it wasn't. I when when I rewatched this film for this podcast episode, it was one of those sort of experiences where it's like I don't think I've ever actually sat through this in its entirety before. But so many scenes were kind of familiar to me. I, I guess I must have just seen it in bits and pieces on sort of commercial TV in the late nineties. You know, like just channel surfing and watching a bit of it. Um, probably growing bored and changing the channel. So it was one of those ones where, yeah, I don't think I'd ever sat down to watch it from go to woe, but I'd definitely seen a whole bunch of it. Yeah, so it's not a particularly thrilling uh, story for this one from me, probably in line with the film. Yeah, I myself didn't sit at the cinema, and one of the issues we raise when we discuss these twin movies every episode is asking the question, did the first movie spoil the enthusiasm to see our second version of the same story? And for me, in this case, The Truman Show was so good that when I saw the poster, the trailer for EdTV, I just thought, oh, man, this looks like an a inferior version of something great I've already seen. So I actually didn't see it until last night oh, wow. before recording this podcast episode I feel like I had seen more of it, though, for the same reasons you mentioned, perhaps seeing clips and grabs on TV. It's a very likeable film in terms of its casting and so on. So I feel like I perhaps saw bits and pieces 
on Friday or Saturday nights when it was playing. And I definitely saw the trailer numerous times and the trailer shows a lot of the film in terms of the gags and the storyline. So it wasn't that unfamiliar to me when I actually watched the film and there weren't many surprises. Uh, Although we'll get to production uh, madness and missteps in relation to the promotion of this film because I thought it'd be more of a slapstick film than the film I actually saw. Yeah. So perhaps we should- Actually, before we do, Ben, before we do, uh, it's interesting- I hadn't read the IMDb synopsis for either of these movies ahead of uh, recording this podcast because, you know, I'm not I'm not the researching type. But um, EdTV's IMDb synopsis, though, a video store clerk agrees to have his life filmed. Why do you think they included video store clerk? That's 10% of your entire logline. But him being a video store clerk, why don't they just say a man agrees to have his life filmed? Why do they include video store clerk? Yeah, look- Maybe I should start revisiting including these synopses from IMDb because if the film's older than 10 years, as we've joked before, they're often written by some fanboy um, and actually aren't the official synopsis that the studio would have released at the time. Um, this one is pretty neutral uh, and sounds like it came from the studio. I actually, for the first time ever, exaggerated slightly because it's just the one that online is a video store clerk agrees to have his life filmed by a camera crew for a television show. It actually leaves out the crucial 24 hours a day detail, which is pretty crucial in terms of the pitch for the film. But I agree. Like, I'm not sure why that's relevant. I guess they're just trying to make the point that he's an average Joe. But it could yeah, could have been like a, a lumberjack or a, a garage attendant or something like that. Like the point being he's someone who – by his job description, isn't particularly famous. And this was an era where you had to be famous to justify being on TV. Maybe. And if you're a video store clerk, it's like, oh, you know, you're an average person. That's pretty weird that they'd put that person front and centre on a TV show. That's my guess. Yeah. I I guess I'm just trained to think, oh, well, that's going to be very important. So what set of skills as a video store clerk is he going to bring to to this? What 1999... Uh, movie info is he going to use as his, like, uh, you know, um, um, yeah. Anyway, look, I just thought that was that was weird. They could have just said an average guy, an average Joe agrees to have his life filmed and yeah. you would have got the same idea without building up expectations as to how his job kicks in in some way for the plot. True. Anyway, we digress. So- Let's digress further to a quick little uh, history lesson uh, and compare these two movies as to how we got here. So the Truman Show has got a really interesting background. So just, you know, loosen your trousers, take off your shoes, lean back on the couch, and I'll quickly walk you through it. Who, me or listeners? So uh, both. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, look, I'm fascinated by the career and the creative output of the writer Andrew Nichol, who wrote The Truman Show. Here's how it goes. Starting back in May 1991, so seven years before the final film was delivered, Andrew Nichol, who's got a background as a TV commercial director, he completed a one-page film treatment titled The Malcolm Show. And it had a tone that was more like a science fiction thriller, and it was set in New York. And He's someone who's always questioned the authenticity of our lives at certain points, and that was the drive behind the story. So about two years later in 93, producer Scott Rudin 
purchase the script for slightly over one million US dollars. So straight away, I'm amazed by that. But then, of course, this is the time back in the day of, correct me if I'm wrong, Gabe, but we're talking that big peak of spec scripts where you could sell a script for a million bucks like, uh, I think it was Lethal Weapon or Last Boy Scout and Basic Instinct. What else? There was like window of time, wasn't there? Yeah, well, I think, what was it? Basic Instinct was sold for like three million bucks off a back of a, you know, a scrawled napkin or something like that. But yeah, I mean, what was what was some other big big spec sales? Uh, I think so. The Last Boy Scout was pretty huge, I think, wasn't it? After the success of Lethal Weapon, yeah, I think did did John Bracanto and Michael Ferris sell the game as a spec for a lot of money? Maybe. Uh, ah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, but yeah, Shane Black's Last Boy Scout. I think that one was quite quite famous, and I think Shane Black's Long Kiss Goodnight was a big spec sale as well. So at this point here, Nichols in his early 20s, so a million dollars for just a one-page treatment is pretty incredible. So then Paramount Pictures comes on board and agrees to distribute the film and part of the deal, and this is pretty bullshit for Nickel at, at his age with his lack of directing experience, required him to have this film be his directing debut. But when they worked out the budget was $80 million, they thought that's too much. So they actually paid him to step aside so he got paid more money to not make the film. And then what happens was Brian De Palma comes on after that, uh, but then steps aside because the budget is enough for him. And then Tim Burton, Terry Gilliam, Barry Sonnefeld and Steven Spielberg all come on before eventually Peter Weir signs in 95. Wow. I'd, I'd, I'd love to be able to see all of those filmmakers' versions of this movie. Like, what does the Brian De Palma Truman show look like and how how lurid could he make it? Well, it's funny you mention that because all of those directors except for Spielberg probably would have gone for a darker tone and the thing was that we actually wanted the film to be funnier and thought that Nichols' script was too dark and depressing. So that's led to him casting Jim Carrey. They delayed the film for a year to accommodate Jim Carrey's schedule with the cable guy and Liar Liar and then he had Nickel rewrite the script 12 times, pushing, pushing, pushing for that more comic version and then changing the setting from the darker uh, environment of New York City to eventually uh, Seaside, Florida, which is one of those, um, you know, master plan communities, which gives that film that kind of iconic look where every single house is a cookie cutter of each other. Mm. So, yeah, that's sort of how we got this film that was more comedic than the darker version. And in fact, in the darker version, there's actually a scene where Truman wa- is walking along and he sees a woman being sexually assaulted and he pauses for a second and then walks on and doesn't help her. And then once he goes out of sight, essentially like yelling cut, all of the actors then kind of like get out of, just sort of stop their performance and look at each other thinking, what an asshole. Like <laughs> they set up this storyline to try and I think, you know, give him a chance to be heroic and he doesn't. He just sort of like wimps out and doesn't actually save this woman at all. So that scene straight up, you can just imagine the tone of the original version by Nicole. Yeah, right. Well, it does feel like what they landed on is a kind of brilliant and perfect concoction of all of these people's talents, doesn't it? Like 
Yeah, it's a great example of collaboration where everyone brings something different and the entire film is a sum of its parts. Absolutely. So let's jump to how we got this other similar movie called Ed TV. Now, Ed TV is actually an adaptation of a Canadian film called Louis Nineteen King of the Airwaves, which came out about five years earlier in '94. So it's a remake. So, in looking at the history of these two films, it just appears that they were simply once again coincidentally created in isolation without any connection or influence on the other and just happened to come out at a similar time. And this is interesting, Gabe, because the more we talk about these films and look into the history behind each of them in each podcast episode, I think the only combination we've had so far where it appears that both films were really competing against each other and seem to have a genesis that was in connection, I think is probably A Bug's Life and Ants. Because as you might recall, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who worked for Disney, left Disney, started his own animation studio and regular studio called DreamWorks, and had heard a pitch about these ants that are the heroes of the story, and thus sort of kick-started his film into production called Ants with a Z, and A Bug's Life being made by Pixar with Disney was happening at the same time. But besides that, and maybe Deep Impact in Armageddon, it appears that each of these films consistently are just happening uh, purely in isolation and just finding a zeitgeist um, when they're released. But remind me, is, are there, is there any film you can think of in our previous episodes where they were inspired by the same story or there were accusations of intellectual property theft? No, I mean, those are the two that stand out. And I'd probably guess that most of the time when two films do start up in the situation that you've just described, the the loser, as it were, probably doesn't actually move out of development. You know, uh, something like in the mid-'90s there was, you know, uh, Outbreak and The Hot Zone, two movies both being developed about, you know, responses to global uh, pandemics. And in the end, The Hot Zone is just never made and Outbreak is. Yeah, I mean, it never seems like a smart move, does it, to try and split the audience because generally the first film out of the gate cleans up and makes all the money, as is the case with a recent podcast episode, Mission to Mars, and basically, you know, eats the cake of the subsequent film, which in that case was Red Planet. So it's not a smart business move to try and race to the box office because if you don't make it, if you hurt, if you stumble, you're going to lose. That's right. All right, <clears throat> let's jump to our review then. Let's start with The Truman Show. So, Gabe, you've seen it all several times, which makes me think you like this film. What worked for you about it and what do you think it gets right and wrong about this whole concept about someone's life being filmed 24 hours a day? Because these films are similar, but there is a key difference in that the protagonist in The Truman Show has no idea that this is happening. Walk me through it. Yeah. I mean, look, The Truman Show is, I think in the lead up to this review, we've sort of both given away that we think this is a pretty great movie. Am I am I wrong in saying that? No, this would be in my top 20, top 50 films of all time, I think. I think it's incredibly rewatchable. Yeah. And the way it juggles everything is, is remarkable, like the tone, the story. Um, I can jump in and watch a scene at any point in this film and get hooked. Do you find the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as we described before, the the 
the way that all of the ingredients of this came together and, like you said, they all sort of really complement each other even if at some point they started as like kind of disparate ideas. I mean, the, even just like the tone of this, the way it juggles the kind of absurd comedy with sort of kind of profound drama is it's really great. Um, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but was this the film where Jim Carrey, I suppose, was able to transition from uh, what people kind of unfairly describe as like just a comedy actor into, you know, someone who the critics, as it were, would give uh, much more respect to? Was it, this was before, say, Man on the Moon, right? Yeah, it was before Man on the Moon. And to give you an idea as to what critics thought of Jim Carrey at the time, when he was in Ace, Detective Pet Ventura, the famous Siskel and Ebert made the comment, this guy's career is dead, he'll be a nobody. And they famously saw this film and just said, he's fantastic. Like, yeah. they actually apologised for the earlier review. And it was after this film that he goes on to do Man the Moon, uh, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, um, even more recently, that TV show, TV series Kidding. Like, he became quite a well-respected dramatic actor, which is really hard for a comedian to do, but particularly someone like him who is such a physical comedian, like mm. almost a cartoon. Like, you watch a film like The Mask, and even though it uses a lot of CG to create that extra character, his face, his real face is almost as animated as that mask. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, it's a bigger conversation, but the way people might be disparaging towards comedic actors against quote-unquote dramatic actors is kind of bullshit because the skill required to do what he does in The Mask is actually pretty impressive. So to me, I guess it's not surprising that he might be able to deploy that so well in this. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Jim Carrey is fantastic and this whole cast is great. Um, you know, like, did you say it was like Peter Weir's idea to set it in this sort of like uh, Bayside uh, catalogue-looking town? Yeah, he deliberately wanted to take it away from New York and spent ages doing pre-production uh, location scouting, discovers this town, actually was created by these two guys who actually feature in the film uh, as they created it sincerely as what they would thought was the dream of America. So it, in some ways it reminds me of Pleasantville actually and their dream I think we probably saw as a nightmare. <laughs> and thought, this is great because it looks like a TV commercial, mm. which is also what the show also is. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, look, the, the film also feels so sort of thematically rich. It, it, it's got big ideas and it's all sort of dressed up then in a really engaging, I mean, it's weird because you could almost call it sci-fi. Well, that was the original pitch. And the problem was is that we thought, in being a darker film and being set in New York, it was too sci-fi. And if you look at the filmography of Andrew Nichol, most of his films are overtly sci-fi. And you describe it in IMDb as sci-fi, but if I look at IMDb now for a description, uh, it comes up as comedy, drama, sci-fi. So, I mean, you know, science fiction by definition, right, is a fictionalised version of science. I don't know if there's any science to this movie. I call it it's prophetic, uh, it's futuristic in that it basically predicted this whole genre of reality TV and social media Instagram influences. I'm not sure what the science, though, of the film would be. 
I don't know, maybe it's that I read that it had been described as kind of like a Twilight Zone episode in a way. And I guess the idea of a a a giant, huge set and a, a godlike creator of the TV show living in the moon, you know, is all, I mean, that's fairly scientific. Yeah, you're right, you're right. You know. Basically, science fiction can be a futurized or future version of now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose Gattaca, I mean, no, Gattaca's probably got a more, what, what would you call it, a more high, what's that, what's that term I'm looking for? High concept idea, and is is much more conspicuously set in the future. I've actually forgotten from memory. Truman Show's not set in. There's no like opening, you know, title scroll that says the year is 2021. Is there? No, it's set now. I think they even mentioned 1995 uh, in the film. So he's, I, I think, about age 29 or 30 in the film. But they do mention at some point. You see the clock. Uh, so it is set in the present. Just a, an alternative version of the reality of 1998. Mm, yeah. Actually, we, sh- we should say, Gabe, I mean, it's something we just take for granted. Just think, Nickel writes this treatment in 1991, okay? So we're in a world of pre-internet, you know, four by three TVs with, what, three channels, if you're lucky in certain countries, cable TV, but in most countries like Australia, you'd get three channels even in big cities like Sydney, and this guy basically predicts the whole genre of reality TV. That is actually incredible. And then Peter Weir executes that from the director's chair as to how that would probably play out, how audiences would react, how they would fictionalise real life, which is one of the things that most people don't realise about reality TV is that it it actually isn't real. It's made to look real, but – all those storylines and all those shows, including those Kardashian programs and so on, they either they either add storylines when they film it to provide drama, or they create drama in the edit suite afterwards when there wasn't drama in the first place. I mean, just think back without any recent memory of the last twenty two years of this whole genre of reality TV, and think this would have seemed so ridiculously far fetched. And I can see how you would think this would be, at the time, hardcore sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And maybe the most interesting thing about this film is the thing that would make it actually not possible to be a reality show these days compared to Ed TV. and that's what you talked about earlier where Truman doesn't actually know that he's being filmed because I can't imagine... For everything, I guess it sort of gets right about the or predicts about reality show TV, and maybe that's most sort of uh, or most or best dramatised with you know even just the reactions of people watching, you know, people leaving it on all night for comfort um, or whatever. But I can't imagine that they would actually film someone from birth to you know thirty five years old or whatever without them knowing. Or maybe I'm naive. Yeah, it's definitely the sci-fi conceit, isn't it? Like it's a massive bridge of trust you've got to go along with that he wouldn't somehow find out that someone the cast wouldn't actually accidentally, you know, expose the – it's a show. I mean, you see moments where he sees like sets in the background of a lift and that part where his dad reappears and they try and write that into the story. Mm. But it's a big stretch, isn't it, that somehow 
hundreds of thousands of people mm. would keep this a secret. Like, but you know, you know that sort of montage sequence where the guy bursts out of the oh yeah, that's great. The present at Christmas, like, but I, I, maybe in a way though, that kind of conceit is where the film gets much more of its kind of profundity. You know, the idea that he doesn't know he has a creator. You know, what is reality? Is you know, like these sorts of questions. Whereas a film like Ed TV, where Ed just agrees to be on the show. There, it feels much less sort of thematically interesting. Like there's not, you know, deeper questions there in a way. Oh, you mean like by being born into this TV show, he wouldn't have the same um, points of reference that you and I have to decipher if something is fake or not. Like he'd have a vibe or a feel, like when he sees people scurrying when the lift doors open and expose his whole background behind the set – but because he hasn't watched TV shows like you and I to understand what a set is and he's never left the town, then it'd be harder for him to d- interpret or guess that his existence is made up. Like it's almost like The Matrix, right? Oh, totally. You know nothing else. So this film- Yeah. I mean, this film is basically The Matrix, right? You live in a reality and then you discover this whole new reality. Yeah, that behind that behind it, or as Blade says, the world you live in is just the sugar-coated topping for another world. Blade. Um, so, so basically in 1998, Blade, and by the way, that's a previous podcast episode, uh, which you must listen to, Blade versus John Carpenter's Vampires. But we're talking in 1998, there's a zeitgeist of Blade. I think The Matrix comes out in early 99, doesn't it? Yeah. And this film comes out in 98. So in this sort of 12, 18-month period, we've got these three very different genre films, all based on this really fundamental idea of there being this subworld uh, that people aren't aware of and they're living their own existence without any idea as to the reality of where they are. That's pretty amazing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, I mean, don't you don't you agree? Like, it's very interesting that, that the, the choice to have him not know that he's being filmed just gives way to so many more bigger ideas than the choice that EdTV, I suppose, makes in having him. Yeah, I think that's definitely it. Like when we talk about which of these films in the twin movie series does the concept better, this idea of him not knowing has so many more interesting questions about choice, morality, autonomy, God, Mm. uh, perception. Like to me, it's the whole film is just bedded in like – um, the morality of his situation. Like yeah. in every person in that film, his wife. I mean, there are whole uh, university college theses on whether his wife on the show, played by Laura Linney, is a prostitute. Yeah, right. Because she's getting paid money to do a role. Uh, she's going to conceive his kid in an upcoming storyline, which they're setting up, which means she's going to get pregnant in real life. I mean, there's a whole interesting school of feminist thought just in terms of her role alone. But every character, like the parents, like what's their responsibility? How much do they love him? I mean, and if you're filming a show 24 hours a day like Laura Linney's character is, which part becomes you? Like when do you stop acting and when do you become the character? Because she can't go home after work. She's sleeping actually in the bed in the house. Mm. So- isn't she, after a certain number of weeks or months or years, actually becoming the character in the show? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, even that thing I was reading that there's a a medical condition now called Truman Show Syndrome where people, uh, or like a psychological condition where people believe and kind of unsurprisingly they're um, overwhelmingly well-to-do white men but believe that their life is a <laughs> is a reality show, you know, that they are secretly being filmed, that, you know, maybe behind the car radio or whatever is a, a hidden camera and such. Um, I think it's called the Truman Delusion, isn't it? Like, yeah. We've actually named it now. It's become ubiquitous enough amongst the psychology community that it has its own name. And apparently the writer of The Truman Show, Andrew Nichol, made some sort of comment that, you know you've really made it when they actually name a disease or an affliction after one of your creations, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, no one's getting around going, uh, oh, I've got Ed TV disease, Ed TV, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we uh, jump to Ed TV, I've got to point out a few things which, which I really appreciate. And I'm not sure whose idea this was, but I love the fact that either Nichols decided or we decided to name each of the characters after famous actors. So you've got Meryl, Marlon, uh, who else? Ha. Huh. Uh, Laura. They're all the first names or last names of famous uh, Hollywood celebrities. And also in the film, if you look carefully, the street signs are also named after famous Hollywood celebrities like Lancaster Street, which is pretty cool. Um I also obviously appreciate the idea that Truman Burbank, as in he's a true man, and Burbank, named after the Hollywood studio backlot, is a nice little touch. And Christoph, I mean, clearly linked to Christ mm. as the creator, as the godlike figure in the air. So for some reason, I don't find that too on the nose in the film. It just seems to work. I guess one question I have, though, those types of details are clever and- reflect, you know, this being an artificial production. But what does Truman watch on TV himself? I always wondered that, like, what magazines would he read? The newspaper, fine. You can imagine just sort of falsifying that. But to entertain him, they'd have to create an entire series of TV shows that don't reference the outside world or don't reference him. So he would accept his reality. Like, maybe he watches reruns of, like, black and white shows from the 60s, and that's all he knows. Yeah. But it's a pretty complicated process. And, again, I think you just have to go with it and just, just buy into the idea that he hasn't somehow found out. And maybe he doesn't for the reasons we discussed is because he doesn't have any reference points to reality. But it's a lot of work to try and build a deep cultural tapestry around him to support this whole delusion or illusion, I should say. Yeah, they just, um, they're just making shows about how dangerous – you know, sea travel is. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it's just old I Love Lucy episodes or something. Any show that came out pre-Truman. Yeah, yeah, totally. So you wouldn't have that, uh, an accidental ad for his own show. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's uh, skip ahead now. Let's change gears, uh, switch lanes to EdTV. So what did you like and what grinded your gears about this version of a guy being filmed 24 hours per day. Uh, look, I'm just going to preface this. I'm big Ron Howard fan. Love Ron Howard movies. They're really pleasant, real nice movies. A lot of good ones in there. A lot of good movies in his au vieux. 
Is Ed TV Ron Howard's, I mean to say worst, uh, least, fuck it, is, Ron, <laughs> is Ed TV Ron Howard's worst movie? God. It was- yeah, it's definitely in the conversation. Let's go through his filmography, shall we, because it does stand out like uh, Elephant Balls to me as being potentially his worst movie. Actually, you walk us through his filmography. He's made a lot of films. He has. He has. Okay, so walk us through it. Uh, look, his first two movies I think I haven't seen, so I don't know if it is better than Grand Theft Auto and uh, Night Shift. But what else did he make? Cocoon, Willow, Parenthood, Backdraft, Far and Away, The Paper. Splash. Apollo 13. Oh, did I miss Splash? Yeah, Splash. Oh, yeah, Splash, Splash. That's a classic. Sure, totally. Uh, Ransom, Ed TV, The Grinch, A Beautiful Mind, The Missing, Cinderella Man, Da Vinci Code, Frost Nixon, Angels and Demons, The Dilemma, Rush, In the Heart of the Sea, Inferno, Solo, A Star Wars Story. So, I mean, he's one of those directors... He's sort of like a commercial, um, commer- this is giving him some immense prop, but a commercial Soderbergh or Danny Boyle, a milk toast uh, Danny Boyle, in that his filmography, it certainly spans a lot of genres, right? You know, fantasy with Willow, uh, domestic kind of dramedy with parenthood, sweeping period with Far and Away, uh, you know, uh, space movies with Apollo 13, thrillers, The Da Vinci Code, but... God damn, Ed TV really. What did you call it? Elephant balls. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> or you could call it those uh, balls from Transformers that uh, one of the Decepticons has. Um, yeah, look, it's funny, isn't it? You use the expression often. So here's a controversial question to ask you: Would you call Ron Howard a journeyman director? Which we've used in the past in a. It's generally used in a derogatory way to say that a director is the opposite of an auteur. It's someone who doesn't have a distinctive voice or style. What do you think? Yeah, and look, I wouldn't use it in a derogatory way. I think um, directors who don't necessarily have a, you know, instant imprimatur, absolutely nothing wrong with that. But, yeah, look, I would say <clears throat> maybe is Ron king of the journeyman? You know, is he the sort of guy where if you were to watch the movie The Paper, for instance, and Cinderella Man and then Angels and Demons, you'd be like, I have no idea who made these movies and they're all, you know, degrees of, you know, uh, average to pretty dang good. Um, but, yeah, I'd, I would, I'd vote uh, Journeyman, wouldn't you? Yeah, and for the same reason in that I don't think the description journeyman is actually derogatory. I think it's okay to not consistently tell the same story. I mean, Christopher Nolan makes great films, and in every one of those films, the male character has some sort of issue with his ex-wife of some sort. Um, there's, a, there's a whole Honest Trailers parody video about how Christopher Nolan makes the same story every time about the tortured middle-class white guy with some sort of bad connection where the female is usually demonised and he's got father issues. And there are other types of filmmakers like Zack Snyder, for example, that are famous for certain aesthetics like mm. the ramped up slow motion uh, shots or those sort of tableau images uh, with a high contrast look. Uh, and other directors, you know, like Tim Burton, who have a certain aesthetic style where even when they do something like a kid's movie – like a Roald Dahl film, still had that kind of fairy tale, grim fairy tales vibe to it. Uh, 
So to me, it's not either or. It's both. Like I like Tim Burton's films, not so much recently, but I like that he has a dis- distinctive style. I actually do like some of Zack Snyder's style, and but I also love filmmakers that do a variety of genres, like Soderbergh you mentioned, like uh, Danny Boyle, and they don't always shoot in black and white, or they don't always shoot with Junkie XL doing the score. They mix it up, they tailor it to the story, and if you watch their films back to back, you wouldn't necessarily know. That's the same director behind them. But I actually think that's actually a skill in a way because- Totally. You're tailoring the production style to that story. And rather than actually being problematic, uh, I actually kind of think they're getting over to the film. They're saying, I don't need to have my fingerprints all over this film so that it looks and smells and breathes to resemble my work. I'm happy to adapt my style and hire a different- cinematographer, a different composer to just lean into what we think is best for this film. And mm. I think that should actually be complimented, not actually derided. Totally. Uh, it feels kind of unsurprising to me that, you know, when the Han Solo movie ran into problems or whatever the, the studio there thought was the, the Lord and Miller, is that their names? Playing a bit fast and loose with the- That's them. With the property, you know, that they brought in a the shorthand of- Ron Howard, you know, um, to sort of, yeah, like you say, it feels like his films, the 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 story is sort of foregrounded, the performances are foregrounded, but the the aesthetic or his personal aesthetic necessarily isn't, you know, um, and that works great. Like you know, Apollo thirteen is a story incredibly well told, um, and if you compare that to something like, um, you know, when we did Mission to Mars. That's like a, a space movie with De Palma's sort of stylistic imprimatur all over it and it's a bad film with some nice stylistic flourishes whereas Apollo 13 is just a rock-solid movie, you know what I mean? Um, but I guess then that makes him much more dependent on Ron, that is, uh, dependent on the material he's working with. Yeah, totally. Like if you see a film like Apollo 13... If that was a bad film, you probably wouldn't say, oh, it's a bad film with bad story, a bad story, uh, bad acting, but it looks cool. Whereas a De Palma film, you can often say that. Oh, like, um, not a great film, but I love those shots at the 20-minute mark. And with Ron Howard, it's like there's no, I guess, redeeming feature. If the story isn't good, and he's generally not the writer, so he actually, you know, he directs what he chooses, then you can't you can't see something else to try and make up for it. Mm. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. And I guess then in talking about Ed TV, God, it's dull, isn't it? Like- It really is. Like, oh. well, well, tell me what doesn't work for you because this film is a similar concept as we discussed, except in this case- Ed knows he's on TV and it's very much in the vibe 21 years later of what has become the freaking staple of pay TV and commercial TV, which is reality TV programs that have made people like the Kardashians uber wealthy and famous. Like there's an opportunity here. This film is ahead of the curve in predicting this whole genre that keeps the TV industry afloat for two decades. What didn't work for you? Like why is it so dull from your point of view? I mean, I feel like 
every scene is almost the exact same scene, just one after another, which is after he's after the TV crew starts filming Ed, every scene is Ed going to have an emotional conversation with a member of his family who feels put out by this. They connect on some level, then that family member notices that they're being filmed and goes, oh, don't film me. Yeah, I think you're totally right there. Like I hadn't quite put my finger on what doesn't work, but it's like in the Truman Show, you get past an opening introductory montage where they use basically the uh, Harry Shearer television show commentary about the Truman Show to explain basically the last 30 years of Truman's life and then you get dropped in his world, Mm. but you know the rules. The rules have been set up by that little Harry Shearer commentary show at the start, right? Mm. In this film here, the rules are being defined as the story unfolds and that's incredibly boring. (laughs) Like, Like- because they're explaining, like, this is the implication of your TV life being filmed. You can't have sex as easily on screen. All of your secrets come out. Your family, who might want to try and chase the fame, become annoying. Or if they don't want the fame, they get hassled. I guess the film really dates really badly in that way because we've seen this happen in real life since. Maybe at the time it was less obvious, but I don't think it's just that because the film bombed mm. at the time. Like, it bombed badly. So... Well, you know, we're not just looking at this harshly through the lens of 2020. I think it's the fact that it doesn't just push forward fast enough. Like if someone says to you, ask you to describe the plot of this film, what would you say? Uh, I would say a video store clerk agrees to have his life filmed by a camera crew for a television show. <laughs> um, so that's a synopsis. What's the story but, though? Like but, I can't tell you the story except he meets a girl who's his brother's girlfriend. He likes her. They get together. It's too much for her. So then totally. they break up. He starts dating someone else and then gets back together with her. But, but that to me is basically but, 20 at a stretch, 60 minutes of a story. It's not 90 minutes. And and you know that's what's coming. Like there is no universe, you know, where you watch this movie, which is ostensibly just a kind of romantic comedy with a, I guess, high concept twist that, McConaughey and Elfman, Jenna Elfman, aren't going to end up together at the end. Whereas, you know, when you watch The Truman Show, it can sort of go anywhere, you know. That's so true. You've got no idea where The Truman Show is going, do you? Like you think he might gain awareness, but that can happen in a million different ways. Yeah, that's right. So it feels like this is uh, sluggishly, you know, lurching towards a a finish line and, you know, like it's two hours and – a little bit long Ugh, and it just feels it, you know. Um, and there's just even some weird leaps like McConaughey's character, Ed, is dismissive towards wanting to be on the show, TV in general. He's his own sort of, you know, low-key dude and then suddenly he's happy to be on. It just sort of jumps. Um, oh, God, I don't know. It's just, It's just a very... It's just very dull. It has nothing really to say or interesting ways to say it. And it's got a great cast, though. I mean, so many wasted actors, you know. Oh, sensational cast. Oh, we'll get to those guys. We won't step on the uh, the awards because there are no. plenty of people competing for the same award uh, later in the podcast. But it does go slowly and there's nothing more to, to this character, Ed, than the love interest. Like, there's an opportunity here to explore a little bit more moral nuance, like 
what can he do? How can he exploit his fame more, right? We don't see that at all. Like the the best we see is him having the affair or the relationship. It's not even an affair actually because he breaks up with his girlfriend, played by Jenna Elfman. He has the affair with Elizabeth Hurley's character or their relationship and she's ostensibly trying to sort of, you know, trade off his fame. But he's never really in a moral conundrum, is he? Like he doesn't try and exploit his his fame in any way, which then means his basic – this is the problem, I think, is that in making a movie about a guy on TV and following an ordinary guy's life, it's boring because there are no stakes. It's yeah. an ordinary guy's life. <laughs> you're, you're, you're right. Like what? What's the you know? What's the worst that could happen to him? Um, what he he agrees to be on the show. You know, at one point he does try to extricate himself from it, and they say, "Oh, you know, if you just sit around scratching your ass all day, we'll sue you or something." Right? But it's like, and that's the most interesting part of the film when that happens. I think because the stakes seem raised. Like now he's actually in a pickle, right? But that takes ninety minutes to get to. I think. And even then, like, let's say he decided to just sit around and scratch his ass, and the movie spent the last 25 minutes being a courtroom thriller. That would actually be more surprising. But again, you just know that's not going to be the the case. Like, it never it never zigs when you might expect it to zag. I guess you know, there's the occasional amusing scene, but yeah, I don't know. It's like it just. <laughs> it's, just well, it's it's one of those real interesting movies where you know, on the one hand, we have the Truman Show, which is you know. Uh, sort of interesting and profound and big ideas and phenomenally made. And then this, which is like you almost struggle to think of things to to talk about. Well, this is the thing is that by having this Slacker guy on screen and good casting having Matthew McConaughey, you know, who was in Slacker because it's he's the schlub which they're just following and who what an unlikely hero he'll be, you know, because he's not someone famous like a celebrity actor. He's just a Joe Schmo. Um, okay, cool. But- he has no desire. He has no objective. He has no uh, – he's not seeking anything. He doesn't aspire to parlay this fame into something bigger. He's just going about his life and therefore the stakes are so low. Whereas the Truman Show, he is a hunger, a curiosity. They're trying to hide the truth from him. He's testing his friends like his mate played by Noah Emmerich, Marlon, as to whether they will disclose what's really going on. There's a tension you know, like, and every time he gets close to finding out the truth, they add obstacles like they try and drown him, his father returns from the dead, uh, they create like a radioactive scare to try and keep him located in the town. Like, this is constant search and hunger that he has. Mm. Ed in Ed TV has no hunger. No. He's just drifting and then we're the audience along for the ride and the best you get is some antics involving his jealous brother. And and just the uncomfortableness of being filmed all the time when you're trying to date. Yeah, that's right. That's it. Like he doesn't even go to great efforts. The one effort he makes is he goes to a car in an abandoned, or they they drive to an abandoned location where he dumps the film crew and starts sort of getting hot and heavy with Jen Elfman's character. Before all of a sudden, out of nowhere, somehow the TV crew burst in and surprise him as he's sort of like trying to undress her. That's the extent of his efforts to actually try and sincerely pursue that relationship. And that's it. Like, that could have been a few more beats at least, right? Like, how can I pursue this life? And as the TV executive played by Rob Reiner 
just starts turning the thumb screws and threatening to sue him, he becomes more creative perhaps in trying to evade his responsibilities. Like, I don't know, something, you know, then it could be like a chase movie perhaps. Like they're using security cameras to try and chase him down as he goes from gas station to gas station. Absolutely. Just something to have more objective. And, I mean, I guess ostensibly, yeah, you could describe this as a romantic comedy, but they don't really use the premise for that. I mean, 1999, when this came out, was a great year for romantic comedies. Um, uh, Notting Hill came out, Never Been Kissed, Ten Things I Hate About You, She's All That, um, uh, But I'm a Cheerleader, um, <laughs> Blast from the Past. But all of those movies, though, actually have pretty good high-concept ideas that they they set their romantic comedies against, you know, Notting Hill, for instance, is a pretty charming movie. Like how will this regular guy negotiate a relationship with the most famous actress in the world, um, weirdly, while being watched by everybody, is executed much, much better than this. This sort of doesn't, like you say, rise to its own premise. It's sort of happy to set it up and then just sort of waddle through it. Yeah, that's a really good point. This whole idea where films just set up a premise and then don't actually fully explore the implications of that premise. They're so in love with the idea that there isn't a story to match the idea. Yeah. Like you say, it never really, never really turns the thumbscrews enough, um, digs deep enough into it, you know, to make it engaging enough, particularly to justify its, you know, two-hour runtime. Actually, by the way, you just uh, mentioned Notting Hill. Uh, that's one of my favourite movies of all time, would you believe? And I feel guilty saying that. Like, it truly falls into the definition of a guilty pleasure. Wait, why? Well. Because it's a romantic comedy? Yeah, I, th- I think so. No, I think it's the reason why. You can own that. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with romantic comedies. There's nothing wrong with liking comedies. All right. I'm loud and proud. I like Notting Hill. But I've got to say this. There's this great scene Notting Hill at the end where they play that song, Give Me Some Lovin'. By the, I think it's the Spencer McDavis group or something like that. And it's this great song that has a lot of energy as Hugh Jackman, Hugh Jackman, Hugh, Hugh Jackman, Hugh Grant, Hugh Grant is racing at the end of the film by being driven by his mates to get to this hotel to have a last chance to try and win back Julia Roberts. And it's great. It's this little scene where, you know, they're encountering cars and the guy with the crazy hair gets out and clears the traffic and everyone's excited. This music uses exactly, or this movie, Ed TV, uses exactly the same music as that. And it's like, ah, oh, really? Like you even use the same music, the same beats in exactly the same type of moment. It's basically a, a love chase scene um, in the wake of Notting Hill. Like, come on, like you're in the wake of Ed T- uh, the wake of The Truman Show, you're in the wake of Notting Hill. Come on, guys, like throw me... An original bone, please. Mm, mm, true. Um, also, how this film cost $80 million? Like what? Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Like that money was clearly going to the, the actors, uh, the cast, the crew. Uh, but, yeah, you did not see that on screen. And weirdly, this is the type of film that many low-budget filmmakers could actually make for less because you could film stuff handheld and that's sort of cheaper to do with that kind of video aesthetic and totally justify it. So, yeah, that's that's an odd question. I mean, where would that money have, like, 
cast, but surely at this point, was McConaughey 20 million bucks a movie? He's only like 29 at this stage. Like he wasn't that famous. So I don't know. I mean, the rest of the cast, they're recognisable faces, which we'll get to in the awards, but they're not someone who's really taking a paycheck to be in this movie. Like- No. uh, Martin Lando is a great actor, but he's not the guy you bring in and pay $20 million to star as the stepdad in a wheelchair. So- yeah, I don't know. It must have gone to development and I would say the director, writer and producers because it's not on screen. Maybe someone was just embezzling. I don't know if that's libelous or whatever, but like maybe it was just some sort of like, <laughs> you know. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I should just pay a few compliments to some things that this film did get right about social media and reality TV. Uh, like for a start, the fact that his brother Ray – is using the show to promote his own gym. I mean, you know, that's actually quite prophetic, the idea of someone taking the position that they have to try and pitch something else. Um, The fanboys that appear, the fanboys and fangirls, like in real life, I mean, it got that right. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea of scripting reality TV, where they actually, they sort of throw in these little bits and pieces, like they throw Liz Hurley's character in deliberately, and a few of the PAs in the film say, the production assistants, to um, Ellen DeGeneres' character, oh, did you set that up? She's like, no, 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 no. Like that's quite ahead of the curve in terms of not just filming real life but actually uh, artificially creating real life. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was funny, this whole idea, this whole trend that existed in, in, in some films uh, where you've got this sexy uh, delivery girl. You actually have Megan Markle in Horrible Bosses playing the same character. It's this whole idea of, putting a woman in a man's role but making her the sexy version. Like there must be some sort of subgenre name for that because as soon as I saw that I thought, huh, I've seen that in plenty of movies before. Oh, uh, with the uh, with the, the UPS. Yeah, yeah. Product placement. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the only other thing that's interesting to note about this film is just the fact that it reflects the technology of the time. Like this is pre-cell phones that are playing high-quality, you know, HD or 4K video. This is guys with cameras on their shoulders chasing the characters around uh, like, you know, news crews still do. Um, That's, I guess, a very different way in which this film we made now. Like now, not only is it people not in the same way probably filming, but it's actually vloggers on YouTube who are holding the cameras out or a GoPro to capture themselves, to make themselves famous and doing it all, you know, with the resources of, one, two cameras, a drone, and Final Cut Pro on their Mac. Like, that's what that's what's changed. We're here. It's a very expensive operation with a huge footprint of people to make now what you could make on a YouTube channel, you know, in a small little country town. Mm, mm, yeah. Um, now, I guess we should jump quickly to com- our combined review Let's discuss notable similarities as in like a coincidence of ripoff. So here's a few things I spotted. Um, Harry Shearer appears in both films as a commentator on the TV shows being made. Yeah, yeah. Weird, right? Weird. Totally. And actually the, that scene in Ed TV was kind of a an amusing high point, I guess, and also a kind of weird what would you call it, uh, time capsule in a way. You know, you got uh, Michael Moore, I think it's Ariana Huffington and George Plimpton sitting around, you know, talking about how awful this is. 
and I guess I guess I found that actually quite quite amusing. Um, but yeah, it's weird that Harry Shearer was in both, isn't it? It's, it's just such a weird thing that you or your agent would say, okay, let's do the same role. Like he plays essentially the same character uh, in both movies and not a particularly big role. In fact, most of his scenes in The Truman Show ended up on the cutting room floor. So uh, he actually had much more to do in that film. Uh, but that's odd. Um, the other two coincidences or ripoffs I spotted was both films featuring dads from the past coming back into the lives of the hero. Uh, although it's much higher stakes and more dramatic in The Truman Show, whereas in EdTV, uh, it doesn't really amplify the tension that much. Well, you, the Dennis Hopper's, in a weird way, if you described it that way, is playing the same character as True Romance. <laughs> <laughs> a dad from the past coming back <laughs> into his son's life and, compli- you know, um, just much, much less memorably, I suppose, in EdTV. Yeah, totally. The other thing that really freaked me out about watching these films back-to-back is the scenes where they cut away to the audience's growing addiction to the TV show Mm. and their reactions, they're almost identical. Like, you'd actually swap those cutaways to a guy sitting in the bath watching the show or a couple of security guards or garage attendants watching it in their little booth or a couple of, you know, a gay couple watching it at home and becoming increasingly addicted to the show – those scenes are almost identical. It is quite amazing how similar they are. Like both films both got it right as to how people would respond to reality TV, but to do it simultaneously in that same narrow window of 98, 99, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, and weirdly for a film that's so sort of sluggish, they actually managed to get some reasonable kind of character development into those scenes in, say, like Ed TV with, you know, the the couple um, – the the who where like the the man is disparaging of watching the show, but then he becomes hooked, and they're tiny vignettes, but they're weirdly also kind of more interesting than the actual plot itself. I agree, I agree. I actually find the characters uh, in the Truman Show, which I've seen many more times, to be very recognisable and just quite funny. Like the grandmother who has the uh, the pillow with Truman's face knitted on it that she sort of holds. The guy with the goatee in the bath is mm. <laughs> always watching the bath. Like I love when the show ends and the reactions of each of those audience viewers is so distinct. Like the guy in the bath is just really pissed off that the show's over. The two garage attendants are like, oh, yeah, mm. what else is on? Which is just a, a great way to end the show. This guy has been filmed for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 30 years, and to these two garage attendants, it's like, eh, uh, what, what, what's next? The sort of reaction you give if just a regular TV show finished after a, a couple of seasons. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, totally. So I guess, speaking of, I guess, uh, being prophetic and so on, which film has aged better for you? Oh, I mean, undoubtedly on every level, the Truman Show, right? Surely. Yeah, totally. I think- It got it right then and it's actually lasted better, I think, since. Like these films could both date badly with the evolution of social media and reality TV, but I think in the case of The Truman Show, because it still works in an idea that he doesn't know he's being filmed, it still makes the film stand out and not just be a trend of the time. Mm. Like a film based on like I think I've joked before about that film called Cellular where it's all about 
mobile phones of the time, like or The Net with Sandra Bullock. Great movie. Those films can date badly when it's about that hip, cool thing at that time, whereas because Truman Show has that conceit that he doesn't know he's being filmed, it still remains unique now, 22 years later, because that hasn't happened in real life. Totally. As far as we know. <laughs> but but at least, I mean, I'm just going to defend a movie like The Net for a moment. At least it feels like a very, in retrospect now, kind of silly, but uh, dumber, funner uh, snapshot of the time, you know, with goofy-ass thriller plot and stuff. This, in a way, EdTV can't even sort of capture that. You know, like, look, I'll watch The Net way before I ever go and watch EdTV again. In fact, I'm going to go watch The Net right now after this. <laughs> the only person in the world currently streaming The Net. <laughs> Good luck finding it on some video-on-demand service. <laughs> um, before we wrap up the review, any uh, plot holes or missed opportunities? Like, could the filmmakers have done anything better with this high concept? I think with EdTV, we've pretty much exhausted everything that they didn't do. In The Truman Show, I mean, obviously there's that thing about how would he not find out with someone leaking it. Does anything else jump out or do you feel like the way the film's crafted, you, you just go with it and it was the best execution of this idea possible? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty fantastic execution. I mean, I guess because the ending is quite open, it does in a great way leave you wondering what would happen next. Um, well, it's funny you mention that because in the original script by Andrew Nichol, when it was said in New York, he gets out of the the bubble that he's in and finds himself on a rooftop with Christoph and uh, I think the character played by Natasha Leone or whatever her name is. Oh, wait. The, the girlfriend character. Natasha Leone is a different actress. Natasha Mechelon. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. So basically he gets out on the top of this building on a, like a rooftop and confronts them. So you actually see him confront his creator, so to speak, and is there kind of just he's livid, he's furious on the page and is like strangling him and there's like this tension as to whether he'll kill him. And then the girlfriend character says, no, don't do it, and that's the end of the film. So you sort of see his anger, uh, which in in the current version, the film, the film version of The Truman Show, he's more like just relieved and resigned. Like you don't sense that he has that same residual anger. Like he's been through that when he survives the boat being uh, tossed about when Christophs is almost drowning him. And by the end it's like a quiet victory. Mm. But you'd still wonder that the world out there is going to be incredibly difficult for him to navigate or that there is still, you know, there's still an entire story that exists sort of in your imagination after the film ends which is oh okay. Let's discuss that in our sequel pitch. Totally, totally. But I suppose without without saying what that story might might be, and look, frankly, I don't know because we're not there yet. But but that's a really interesting idea, and I love movies that that allow for that. Whereas you know, Ed TV either like it just it it's it's much more finite, I guess. And look, there's nothing wrong with that either. But but. But it, it, Truman Show just feels much more expansive in its world and mythology and universe. And Yeah, the Truman Show is amazing in the sense that, to me, it feels so beautifully capped off at the end. Like, with that ironic comment by that garage attendant, what else is on? And then it cuts to black. Um, the, the drama when that boat is uh, being tossed around, he almost drowns. Like, the Phillips score music is incredible. And the way you actually see 
in the movie, Christoph uh, essentially conducting the orchestra to encourage, you know, Philip Glass on the keyboards to make the music swell with drama to match what's happening on screen. Like yeah. that to me is done so well. And yeah. I've almost teared up many times before, you know, when he almost drowns and then at the end of the storm he's lying there and everyone wonders, is he dead? And then he continues on his way and then the huge shock when he just hits the edge of the dome and the end of the uh, boat kind of like breaks through the concrete I mean, that is such a shock. When I first saw the film, I was mm. totally thrown because when you're watching it, the skyline looks like it's real and I didn't know what was going to happen and I could not predict that there would be stairs on the side that would lead to a door and that he would use his catchphrase um, and say farewell and close the door. I mean, I couldn't see any of that coming and so then what you think is going to happen on the outside world is just left to your own imagination. Like- is a beautifully concluded film but leaves so much open for your own imagination as to what happens next because basically this guy's life is same but different. He's the most famous person in the world and didn't know it and now he goes to becoming the most famous person in the world and knows it without the protection that he had inside that bubble. Mm, totally. Well, hold on to that idea because I think we might swing back to that, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's uh, quickly move on to the trivia then. Now, I've already mentioned a few of those things about uh, streets and cast being named after famous actors, but also casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. Some of these names are fantastic. So Dennis Hopper was actually up for the role of the father and he left after day one. And then goes on to star in Ed TV. I mean, you can't make that stuff up, right? Wait, so they actually shot with him? Yes. Or he was there at least on set for a day. Wow. I wonder why he left. <laughs> it's it's Dennis Hopper. I can think of a million reasons why. <laughs> Hoof and gas on set. <laughs> who knows? And uh, Hope Davis, who I love from that film Arlington Road. Oh, yeah. Uh, she was actually up for the role, played by Laura Linney. Here's another great one. Robin Williams and Gary Oldman were originally up for the role of Truman. Gary Oldman was Andrew Nichols' choice. Yeah. Can you? Hmm. Look, I love I love Gary Oldman, but I feel like he'd just, <laughs> like it'd be ironic him being in a movie where there's literal scenery that he could chew. <laughs> like, you know, fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, apparently in the original script by Nichol, he was actually in his late teenage years, the character Truman, and then they cast Jim Carrey. They had to then kind of just slightly recalibrate the story to be about a man having midlife crisis rather than a teenager suffering from teen angst. Um, that's interesting because I actually can see the teenage one working really well because when you're a teenager, you are questioning reality. You're deliberately pushing the boundaries of authority around you. But I think it works better as midlife crisis because you also ask, what's the point of all of this? But to me, it's it's much sadder because mm. for most people in a midlife crisis, they can't escape their reality. So I think the idea of casting someone, I think at the time, Kerry's in his mid-30s or so, but he's playing a 29, 30-year-old. To me, that actually works better than a teenager. Mm, definitely. Now, in casting Woulda, Shoulda, Couldas for Ed TV, Jennifer Aniston was up for the role uh, played by Jenna Elfman, which, by the way, I could see her playing – just as well. In fact, I actually think with $80 million, they probably could have afforded her if she was available and actually might have worked better, even though I love Jenna Elfman as an actor and loved her um, 
in uh, what's that film that was the debut that weird film by Ben Stiller where he plays a rabbi and oh. Ed Norton plays a priest. No one, no one knows Ben. <laughs> no one remembers. Keeping the faith. Keeping the faith. Wow, keeping the faith. Jeez. Yeah, that's one of my guilty pleasures. <laughs> okay, guilty. Guilty is charged. Um, the other one was that Tom Berenger was up for um, one of the roles in Ed TV as well as the father, but there was a scheduling difficulty, so then he got replaced by Dennis Hopper. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's jump to Spot the Aussie. Uh, were there any? I can't think of any in either film, but correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I mean, Peter Weir behind the camera, I guess. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, um, yeah. But Andrew Nichol- Nichols, a New Zealander, can we claim him as well? <laughs> look, we should give it a we should give it a red hot try. I mean, Peter Weir, come on, buddy, throw some Australians into the cast, mate. Yeah, it's quite surprising, actually. You would have thought there'd be at least one Aussie in one role, given how expansive that cast is. But no. All right, let's jump across to Big Trouble and Little Production. Uh, so I mentioned before about um, Nichols' idea of a darker version and him wanting to originally direct. He had to actually wait until Gattaca for his directorial debut, which was fantastic. But apparently, this is amazing, Ed Harris in The Truman Show wanted to play Christoph as a hunchback. What? With the idea being <laughs> that what? he had been persecuted as a child and wanted to give Truman a more idolised version of the childhood he never had. And Peter Weir said, uh, yeah, um, Ed Harris? I don't think so. Wow. Well, look, Ed Harris, you got to agree, is phenomenal in this movie, uh, maybe against his own best uh, intentions or something. Yeah, that's. I think all great directors encourage their cast to bring ideas to the table, but don't necessarily embrace every one of those ideas. No, that's right. That's right. Uh, let's jump to marketing methodology, madness and missteps. Uh, I think EdTV suffered from that trailer. I mean- the trailer tried to separate itself from the Truman Show and knew they were in trouble because someone already stole their thunder with a very similar conceit, a similar concept. And I, I recall the trailer being very much a slapstick movie, which this movie isn't, uh, not for better or worse, but they tried to make the film more dramatic than what you saw in the trailer or vice versa, and that probably didn't help the film. But frankly, I think that film was already screwed from the start. The same idea was done better beforehand. Someone stole their thunder and uh, it just wasn't marketed very well. Wow. You can remember the trailer better than you can remember the movie. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I have no recollection of this, this this trailer, except for maybe it had the shot of him scratching his nuts and waving to the camera. Oh, yeah, which actually featured one of the posters. Right. Great. <laughs> All right. So let's jump to the box office. So I think you know the winner here, don't you? Oh, look, I really, really hope it's The Truman Show. <laughs> it is. It is. So The Truman Show, uh, now, its budget, I think, was around uh, $60 million. So $20 million, by the way, less than Ed TV. Wow. I mean, just think about that, right? The Truman Show has this entire town. It, it, it is expansive. It is. It has, to me, so much bigger scope and it costs- 33% less than Ed TV, which is about a schmuck in a video store being filmed by a news crew. I mean- Amazing. Really? Yeah. Anyway, uh, $60 million. It does $126 million in the US, plus another 138 and a half internationally for a worldwide total of 
$264 million. So they made bank. Mm. And we have to presume it's been popular on home home media and so on as well, uh, right? Like, I, I feel, given how much you and I watch this film on DVD ourselves, I would think this film is so rewatchable that, and, and it actually dated quite well, mm. that it, they would have made a lot of serious coin in residual since then. Good. Ed TV, $80 million. It makes, this is terrible, only $22.5 million in the States, which is incredible for a Ron Howard film. $12 million internationally for a grand total of $35 million of $80 million. Oof. I mean, that's a bomb. That is terrible. Brutal. Which might be reflected in the Rotten Tomatoes scores. So let's jump to that. So I think you'll guess the answer here. Um, the Truman Show with the critics is 94%, which is incredible. Ed TV. <laughs> actually, its score's not bad. It's actually 64% with critics. Really? Wow. Wow. Huh. Now, guess guess which one won with the fans? Truman versus. Come on. It's got to be Truman Show unless there's this, like, sort of Ed TV army out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. Uh, 89% with the fans for the Truman Show and Ed TV has a score of 30%. So, you know, the box office basically reflected that. So uh, not a great film in the first place and a film that came after a better version. So always screwed. Now let's jump to the awards. I'm very excited about the awards, but I'm particularly excited about the first two awards. Are you pumped? Are you ready? I am. I can never remember what the awards are, so I don't know what the first two are. Okay. So I'm, I'm ready to be surprised and excited. Best title. Oh, that's the first one? Yeah. Okay. The Truman the Truman Show's got to win, surely, right? Okay, sure. Okay. Truman Show it is. Woo! Now, the, the poster. I think that the Truman Show posters, and there's quite a few of them, are some of the best theatrical posters of all time. Wow, all time. Yeah. All time. So if you're listening to this on your iPhone or Samsung, check out the podcast app and you'll see both posters side by side. If you can't see them, I'll briefly describe two of the Truman Show posters. Now, there's this one poster which is great. It's like basically a giant TV, something similar to what you see in Times Square, uh, playing, and it shows Truman Show asleep, totally blissfully unaware that he's being filmed. And it says like day 10,909 or something. And then like a huge crowd of thousands of people watching that below, which to me just captures the whole film in that not only is he being filmed, but he's totally unaware that he's being filmed. The other poster, they've spent $75,000 on. And it's this mosaic where, I'm not sure what you call the effect game, but basically it's lots of little pictures, in this case, lots of little pictures of Truman, but put together, if you stand back, you see like a larger portrait of him. Mm. And I remember the movies like sitting in the foyer and just how cool that poster was because you'd appreciate it from far away but when you step up close to it in a cinema foyer and just work through each of those images, it's just mesmerising. Like, to me, it's a really cool design and it reflects a story, right? Yeah. Millions of snapshots of his life that put together a portrait of this character. I mean, I just think they're fantastic posters. Mm. In fact, I remember at the time, you, you don't often read about, you know, key art for movies as their own separate thing. I remember reading articles about the poster, about that mosaic poster. Yeah, but that says a lot, though, how influential it must have been, right? Because it was cool in its own right, but it was totally appropriate for this particular film. 
Now, in sharp contrast, why don't I uh, throw you <laughs> the opportunity to describe the posters for EdTV? Well, maybe I had mistaken that moment from the trailer as just remembering the poster, but the poster for EdTV is just McConaughey looking surprised as he scratches his nuts and a camera points at his head. Which is kind of interesting because it shows juxtaposed with the Truman one, here he's alert, he's awake, that he is being filmed. Like, very similar ideas, right? One guy's asleep, unaware, one guy wakes up and has this mic dangling in his forehead and someone leaning over his groin, you know, shooting a camera right into his face. And the other poster is terrible. Why don't you describe that one? Wait, there's another one? <laughs> oh, you mean the the just the floating heads where, like, McConaughey is hugging Elfman and, and you know, Elizabeth Hurley is back-to-back with him and then Woody Harrelson sort of just been photoshopped over to the side, like, smiling. Yeah. Like, that sort of terrible, yeah, awful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, awful. I think we know the winner here. It's the Truman Show. Yeah, yeah. When you create an iconic piece of key art... That surely beats some shitty floating heads. Yeah, that was an easy win. I always say it's the easiest win in any podcast episode. It was a slam down. Okay. Well, let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. So, like them, who jumped from indie films into the Hollywood big time and got their break in these twin movies? Now, starting with The Truman Show. I, I know this isn't the award but we touched on it before, but this is almost an inverse version of that where an actor was getting, you know, $20 million paychecks for incredibly broad, wacky comedies, parlaying that into something more dramatic. It's almost like, you know, the the reverse award. Uh, interesting, because I was going to put down Paul Giamatti as the control, room, the control room director where, you know, he doesn't even have a name in this film, but this is one of the first times I sort of saw him jump from mm. indie movies to the mainstream. Mm. But also I, I had Natasha McElhone. Is that how you pronounce her surname? Natasha, I mean, it's she's Irish, so it's probably got some sort of lilt to it, but sure. Yeah. Is she actually Irish? I thought she put on an Irish accent in Ronan. Oh, maybe that's why I think she's Irish. <laughs> anyway, she goes on to have a big career in that TV series Californication and she also was in that film Ronan. But I hadn't seen her before, and she's really good in this movie. So I had those two, Paul Giamatti and Natasha, and then Ed TV. The best I could put forward was Jenna Elfman playing Shari, who had been in Dharma and Greg, but this was her big break in terms of movies. What do you think? I mean, the same was probably true for Ellen DeGeneres, wasn't it? She'd probably been in Ellen, and now she's you know popping up in in. In movies? I mean... So really it's got to be Paul Giamatti, doesn't it? Well, from EdTV, maybe you could say, could you say Adam Goldberg? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, okay. I've got to him down for an award coming up, but let's... Here's a contender. So if it goes down to Natasha versus Paul versus Adam... Just give it to Natasha. All right, Natasha wins it. All right, moving ahead. The Before They Were Famous Award or can also be Blink and You'll Miss Them. So for Truman Show, I had Peter Krause... He of Six Feet Under uh, playing the character of Lawrence. Yeah. How about you? He's like the he's like his co- like the his coworker, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a good one for, for the Truman Show. No one else sort of uh, jumps out or or comes to mind. Ed TV. Harry Shearer? No. Harry Shearer had done two hundred and forty two episodes of The Simpsons by then. 
Also, fucking Spinal Tap, man. Well, it can also be the Blink and You'll Miss Them Award as well. So, okay. Well, true. I, I mean, if you want to do the Blink and You'll Miss Them, it's Bill Maher, Jay Leno, uh, Ariana Huffington, yeah. Michael Moore, RuPaul. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Yeah. Give, give it to the, the, the combined bunch of people playing themselves in EdTV. <laughs> okay. This will be the only award that's a good award for EdTV to win. Okay. Let's go on to the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stealer Award, uh, named after the iconic stealing, show stealing performance by Tommy Lee in The Fugitive. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? Okay, I've been waiting all week for this. Oh, have you? Yep. Okay. This guy is my guy. I love this guy. Okay. I know who you're going to say as well. It's Noah Emmerich. Uh, how good is he? He plays the best friend, Marlon. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, he, to me, is in this little sort of subgenre or subclass of actors like David Morse who are recognisable but solid, believable on screen. I mean, those two guys you basically interchange in any movie. Like, he could be the husband in Proof of Life and it'd work as well. Like, maybe it's the sort of thinning white hair. Maybe it's the the calm expression. Um, but ah, I just think he's absolutely fantastic. I'm surprised he was cast in this big role uh, because he wouldn't have been the first choice at the time. I'm assuming that Peter Weir just said, you know what, he's the best guy for this role and I would imagine there would have been studio pushback, but, but I think it's great. So he's my nominee for the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stealer Award. I mean, it may well be that he was cast because he didn't have a huge profile and, you know, they, maybe they just auditioned him. But, you know, that sequence with him and Truman on the bridge, I mean, he's just, he kills it in that. Oh, he, he the way he lies to the audience and to Truman, which you find out as they cut to him being fed lines, where he's, it's like acting on acting, right? <laughs> mm, totally, totally. He's so good. It's a hat on a hat, but it works so well. And he, to be able to have the audience, like us be empathetic to his character, but also at the same time he's betraying his best friend on screen in this TV show. I mean, that's a really, really delicate balance to find. And they just nail it. Mm. They totally nail it. Mm. If it was cast as someone like, I don't know, with a more Machiavellian look or a delivery that was just sort of smug, it would not work at all. But he, it, it, it really is very well done. So one of my favourite actors of all time who uh, I've loved ever since seeing this film, and to me actually uh, he's up there as one of the top two or three things that I love about The Truman Show. So I've got him. Uh, did you want to put any others forward from the Truman Show? No, no. Look, uh, Mr. Emmerich would be my my vote as well. Okay. Well, Ed TV. I was thinking Woody Harrelson's a contender for this award. I mean, he's he's great, right? Woody's always great on screen. And if you're going up against Matthew McConaughey, and you want to have someone to sort of like, you know, entertain on the screen in conjunction, he's got to be up there as one of the best choices around. Yeah, I mean. We're talking. Is this a, a small or poorly written role? Yeah. Is this this award? Yeah. I like. I like. I like Rob Reiner in this as the studio boss or the TV network boss. Um, you know, that's a good choice. I, like, I love it when directors act. Like, you know, I mean, look, Rob Reiner has so many credits that I'm sure he could also just call himself an actor. But he's an incredibly sort of famous 
uh, director. You know, he directed um, Stand By Me, Spinal Tap, Misery, A Few Good Men, Ghost of Mississippi, you know, some pretty big, big films. It's sort of like when Sidney Pollock turns up in movies and you're like, ah, oh, it's Sidney Pollock. <laughs> Here he is. Now he's acting. Oh, that's a perfect comparison. Yeah. So like when Rob Reiner turned up in this, I thought he's pretty good in a fairly stock, you know, idiot TV network boss role. Yeah, I agree with that. How about I give you that nominee, but Noah wins anyway. Okay, good. Fair trade, fair trade. All right, done. Okay, the Mickey Rourke Award. Named the honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on. So who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films? So starting with The Truman Show, there's this woman called Una Damon who plays the character of Chloe. She's a South Korean-American actress and she's up there in the control booth with Kristoff. Um, mm-hmm. She's not actually in the film that much, but she really makes an impression in the small role that she has. If you look at her IMDb filmography, she just stops working in 2007 and barely has any roles before that. And there's just something in this film where I think it's a combination of her look with her kind of hair design and uh, lipstick and glasses and, uh, you know, her sense of power in the in the film. I've always sort of like been struck by her and she never kicked on to do anything after this, which surprises me. Well, she did do um, Deep Rising after this. Oh, one of your favourite films. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, fair. Well, what about um, Ed TV? Okay, I'm putting forward Adam Goldberg, who plays John. Look, he's been in a lot of stuff, but I've always thought that he hasn't been in as many films or TV shows as he should. He's a bit of a polarising character on screen. I mean, I think he plays versions of himself. He's basically... Pretty arrogant, pretty annoying. I don't know what he's like in real life, but the characters he plays, he's grating. But to me, he has presence on screen. I'm just so surprised that I, he actually hasn't been in more. I, I love it when uh, Adam Goldberg turns up in movies. I'm uh, I'm pro Goldberg. Uh, I loved him in uh, The Prophecy. Did you ever see that one? Where he uh, with Christopher Walken where Christopher Walken's Gabriel the Angel and Adam Goldberg is some poor schmuck who tries to kill himself only to be brought back from the dead by Walken. It's great. It's great. Wow. No, I have never heard of that film. <laughs> hey, look, uh, if one of the things I like to do is uh, recommend 1990s uh, The Prophecy, man, get on it. The sequels are pretty good too. But I'm, I, I like it when uh, Goldberg turns up. How about this though? Could we vote for McConaughey? Was this part of the the mid-late 90s downslide of McConaughey's career. No, Um, no, no. Before the McConaughey's began, I thought he hit rock bottom with those uh, rom-coms like Failure to Launch and stuff. So I would say it was after doing those, you know, terrible rom-coms that he kind of lost all credibility. Mm, Okay, fair. What's he do? What's he do after this film? What's he do? What what's what are his next steps? Like immediately after, I think. Yeah. What do he do? U five seven one, not great. The wedding planner, uh, frailty. Oh, frailty's great. Um, although I'm pretty sure frailty didn't exactly um, set the box offices on fire. Um, though after this, he did do a movie that literally set the sets on fire. Rain of fire. Fuck <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, I think we'd have to say that he has kicked on, and okay. uh, he's had like you know dips in his career, but he didn't make the mo- he he did make the most of his opportunities and made bank in some ways. If he didn't get the 
critical acclaim in The Wedding Planner. You know, I'm sure he paid for three houses. Fair enough. We should we should save this award to give to him if we can ever find a movie to pair with Tiptoes. <laughs> Describe to the listeners what Tiptoes is. Ah, uh, I mean, it's this infamous movie that McConaughey did um, where I guess it's really just famous for Gary Oldman playing a little person um, where Gary Oldman and Matthew McConaughey play brothers. Matthew McConaughey, and I think it's Kate Beckinsale, go back to meet McConaughey's family and she's pregnant and he's worried that he carries a gene whereby their baby may or may not be a a little person. Is that? Oh, look, anyway, it's- it's. I've never seen it. Was it actually released? I mean, can I see it out there? I've heard all about it, but- There's lots of clips you can see on YouTube and they're mostly just clips of Gary Oldman literally acting while, while on his knees. Because Peter Dinklage is actually in this film. So yeah, which must have just been, I mean, horrifying for him. Do you imagine how brutal and yeah, like fucking hell, he would have just been biting his tongue. Look, I hope they paid him. I hope they paid Dinklage a fucking metric shit ton of money to put up with Gary Oldman's, you know, probably bizarro acting. Anyway, if we can find one, I, as soon as we finish this podcast, I'm going to go out and try and find a tiptoes twin um, that maybe we could. <laughs> Dive into that. Just, I, I just can't wait for doing that Twin Movies episode. Oh, brutal. I think I'm going to give it to ooh, um, Una or Goldberg. I'm going to give it to Una okay. because although less famous, that's the whole point of the award. So Great. it's not an award you want to win, but unfortunately she has. Okay. The Chicken Chicken or the Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies and was it their career high? Ooh, Okay. I reckon for the Truman Show, um, it's got to be for me. It's Peter Weir, Andrew Nichol, or I mean, Jim, Jim Carrey. Carrey. Jim Carrey. Yeah, I mean, this really solidified Carrey's reputation as someone who's not just you know a, a plasticine faced uh, comedy only inverted you know actor. Um, I mean, is this Peter Weir coming out on on top? This is sort of like. Uh, a the the what like sixth or seventh film in a pretty phenomenal run of directing. So it's not really the apex for him, is it? It's pretty strong. I mean, if I think about his filmography, it's up there. I mean, films like Gallipoli and so on are highly acclaimed. Films like Fear are fantastic. I guess it's a bigger turning point in the career of Jim Carrey. Mm. Uh, after the, after the Truman Show, Peter Weir doesn't really go on to do many more films. He does Master and Commander, great movie. Brilliant. But he starts kind of going downhill a bit. Well, he only did one after Master and Commander, which was The Way Back, which is fairly forgettable. Arguably his weakest, I mean, it's not bad, but his weakest film, which just speaks to his filmography, I suppose, that there's not a lot of, there's not a huge amount of movies in it, but they're all pretty, pretty, pretty damn good. I mean, this is the guy that made that expression, you know, Captain O'Captain, you know, famous, um, that made Rob Williams a serious actor. In fact, that's the key bit. I didn't even think about this till right now, but this guy has taken two comic legends and made them famous and I think Oscar nominated for dramatic performances. That's a hell of a skill as a director. So, look, let's put down Jim Carrey for this one, shall we, as a nominee? Yeah, look, I think it's I think it's Jimbo. How about Ed TV? Did anyone <laughs> Who came out on top and was it their career high? Oh, that's rough. 
Well, I mean, this was probably the high point of Elizabeth Hurley's career, uh, the sort of late 90s. Oh, yeah? Yeah. She was capitalising off, you know, that famous dress and uh, post-breaking up with Hugh Grant. So, yeah, I I guess so. It's an award you don't want to win. Um, I guess at the end of the day, though, we have to hand it to Jim Carrey. Give it to Jim. All right. It's no Oscar Jim Carrey, but it's an award you should definitely put on your shelf. I, d- I don't know if his real name is James, but he should have started crediting himself as James on the serious ones. Oh, nice. I like that. And growing a beard as well, like Robin Williams. James Carrey. Like every serious dramatic performance. Exactly. All right. This one here, I think we both know the winner and the nominee for The Truman Show. Best Dialogue Award. Favourite quote. Oh, surely you're going to go for good afternoon, good evening and good night. Yeah, except do it correctly. <laughs> isn't it? Well, okay. What? Isn't it good morning? And in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Okay. Um, so that, that's got to win. But just just to be fair, let's just have a look at Ed TV. Now, <laughs> I'm going to get to this guy, a guy who's got a famous brother that directs movies. The most memorable thing about Ed TV, which I think I saw in the trailer, <laughs> was the line where the character of Ken, played by, what's Ron Howard's brother's name? Ah, Clint Howard. I love him. I love him so much. Clint Howard. He's the guy who has quite an unusual look, Ah. who works in the control van. Um, He's like the the vision switcher, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. With the, yeah. It's the part where he goes, they're trying to give every character some sort of backstory. And his backstory is that he had plugs. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Because he's balding. He has this fantastic mop, this hair that's clearly stitched onto his scalp. And this is in the era where I guess hair transplants weren't as sophisticated. (laughs) And he says on the phone to someone, and again, a really desperate effort by the filmmakers and the writer to try and give backstory to all the other characters. It's a part where he he complains that he got, quote, doll's hair. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he's really for me, and it might be just because I love it when Clint Howard turns up in movies, and he's in all of his brother's movies. Like Ron puts him in everything, but he—he he for me is almost the best thing about Ed TV. Every time he turns up, I perk up just a little bit yeah. and go, "Hey, here he is! It's Clint." He's such a big actor. I've got him for a, a nominee down the track, but uh, okay. Should I wait to continue to effusively, uh, lovingly play praise Clint Howard? Yeah, keep your powder dry on Clint. Okay, all right. Oh, it's, it's all wet. <laughs> Best dialogue award definitely goes to the Truman Show. Famous line. Totally. Totally. Now, there's an opportunity for Clint here to sneak in with a nomination for the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Uh, let's start with the Truman Show first of all, though. So I've got Jim Carrey, Carrey and Laura Linney. Now, that sounds funny to say, well, they're great in the film. How can they possibly be nominees for the Chewing the Scenery Award? But to me, Laura Linney, Linney does it really well by playing two characters where she's kind of like Chewing the Scenery as – acting on acting, which is really hard. You know that part where she's trying to, like, plug some sort of kitchen device when they're having a fight? Oh, the peeler or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's really good in that one. Um, And also the part where Jim Carrey is in the garden and he's just, I don't know, digging out weeds with his ass in the air. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Like, it's so big, but it works. So they're basically token nominees, but I've really got, Clint Howard and Ed TV. With his doll hair plugs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he he is not a great actor, but he is funny, and at least in this film, which is a comedy, which is a bit absurd, you can kind of go with it. What do you think? 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, he's, he's Clint's pretty famous for uh, what is what's like that horror movie? He's in Ice Cream Man and and appearing in a lot of kind of uh, B pictures, you know, as various like insane type weirdos. So I love him. I love him. I'm a big fan of. Uh, Clint, if we can give him an award, let's give him an award. Yeah, I can't see Clint getting an Oscar anytime soon, so let's hand him the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. All right, taking a paycheck award speaks for itself. The Truman Show, I don't think anyone really was. I had Ed Harris down who played Kristoff, but I think his role was pretty meaty and he would have been quite happy being in this film and wasn't just doing it to buy a new condo. So I didn't really have any obvious nominees. How about you? No, not for, not for, I mean, it's always too good a movie to have someone slumming. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that brings us to Ed TV. Okay, there are a few potential nominees here. You take it away. Okay, well, I mean, for a, for such a terrible movie, God, they assembled a pretty good cast, didn't they? Like Martin Landau, Dennis Hopper, Woody Harrelson. Um, I hope all these guys got paid. yeah. I'm thinking Martin Lando playing Al, uh, the stepdad in the wheelchair, is probably the best nominee for this one in that this is the guy behind some fantastic movies. Um, And actually, he's really good in this film. Like, he's a very sympathetic character, even though his character on the page isn't particularly complex. So I I put him down. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's give it to... To Mr. Landau. All right, Mr. Landau. Look, I know you've been in better films like Crimes and Misdemeanors and- uh, North by Northwest. (laughs) Yes. But uh, this is the award you really want, the Taking a Paycheck Award. (laughs) That's right. That's right. The Stephen Toblowski Award, named after the guy who played Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Gabe, who triggered Hey, It's That Guy when he or she appeared on screen? And there are quite a few. Let's start with The Truman Show. Well, we've given him an award, but Noah Emmerich is definitely a hey, it's that guy. Holland Taylor, who plays Truman's mum, is definitely a hey, it's that uh, yep. hey, it's that woman. Yep. She went on to do like 200 episodes of Two and a Half Men after this, which makes her even more <laughs> recognisable. Yep. Uh, how about Philip Baker Hall? Oh, yeah. Who plays the network executive. Yep. He of uh, P.T. Anderson's Heart Eight, Boogie Nights and Magnolia. Yep. He's a, he's a good one. I've got an obscure choice, though, for you. Okay. I mentioned a few times before the line at the end where the guy says, hey, what else is on? Mm. He's the parking attendant with the blonde crew cut who's a bit overweight. Yeah. um, Uh, Or the garage attendant, Joel McKinnon-Miller. Scully from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, which I've never seen. But he's been in a lot, like 200 episodes of TV and movies and so on. That's three nominees. Yeah, he, he, he's one of those actors actually where I bet if you looked at his IMDb, his characters would all be named things like uh, man or cop, you know. Yeah, totally. So I actually went searching through his 200 credits on IMDb because I thought, hang on, is he that same overweight kid with the blonde crew cut who's the brother in the family in um, Home Alone, Macaulay Culkin's brother? No, I've how much do you think he aged? <laughs> Fuck. Well, I just lost track of time. <laughs> there was like I just thought I thought he was the bully brother. <laughs> two additional decades in there that they just 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 snuck in between 1991 and 1999. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. Um, and then also at TV, I had Clint Howard down down again because again he's been in so much. So look, that's four strong nominees: Holland Taylor. Philip Baker Hall, 
Joel McKinnon Miller and Clint Howard. Who's going to take it home? Uh, Harry Shearer. <laughs> Harry Shearer, he's barely in it. Yeah, but he's still like, hey, look, it's Harry Shearer. Oh, he's gone again. Uh, no, I'm giving it to Philip Baker Hall. Okay, give it to, look, I love Philip Baker Hall, so give it to, okay, give it to Phil. Oh, done. All right. The Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Let's start with The Truman Show. Well, I've mentioned Noah Emmerich. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got Laura Linney down here. I love anything that Laura Linney's in, and I see her in Ozark and I go, I'm all in. I'm all in for Laura Linney. Yeah, she's great, isn't she? I liked her particularly in the sort of mid to late 90s through to the mid-2000s phase where she would always play lawyers who would sit in lawyer bars and smoke cigarettes. Yeah, totally. She was always, she was always believable on screen and had a combination of vulnerability but also just really sharp intelligence behind her eyes. Totally, totally. Like high status. Yeah, exactly. How about Ed TV? Ugh, not cast enough. Ugh. Martin Landau? Yeah, but he's won an Oscar. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's not like Clint Howard. <laughs> put put Clint Howard in mainstream movies, you cowards. <laughs> don't just rely on Ron to do it. As a leading man. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Let's give it to Laura. Okay. It's Noah versus Laura. Okay. Uh, who do you want? Well, Laura Linney has had an incredibly huge and successful career as a- Yeah, you're right. The lead actress in movies. So let's, let's like in any movie where Noah Emmerich turns up, we'll give him- the awards on this podcast. Done. All right. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Who steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? I couldn't find any. What? But I guess you'd have to say Truman Burbank I mean, in The Truman Show. Truman Burbank is a pretty silly name, isn't it? Yeah. That's the only one. I think, yeah, I think that's, I think we're done and dusted, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Everyone else is pretty ordinary, plain Jane names. So Truman takes it. All right. The Memento Award, name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch these movies. Start with The Truman Show, Gabe. I mean, I always forget that Philip Glass appears in the movie as himself playing the score, that moment we talked about earlier. That's always pleasant uh, and I do like it. I mean, I think it's we're at a sort of disadvantage here because both you and I have so little recollection of Ed TV or only ever really watched it for the first time that, it has to be something from the Truman Show, right? Like what for you in the Truman Show catches you by surprise? I See, I've seen the Truman Show so many times. Yeah. That's really hard. Like the film was memorable because I studied it at uni as well. Then I, I guess I was extra focused on all those scenes. So I pretty much recall all of it detail for detail. Um, yeah, there's there's not much. I, I, I guess that scene, as you say, the part, I actually had, had forgotten that Harry Shearer appears. Mm. So- I put that. That's that's it. But otherwise, the film is so tightly uh, produced, and every scene is so memorable that most of it sticks in my mind. So, mm. uh, yeah. Look, let's give it to the Truman Show. Great, and they, and Philip Glass can toss a coin with. Um, yeah, that, I've got I've got nothing. Let's say the Truman Show gets it by default. Great, sounds good. Okay, we're almost at the end of the awards, the Die Hard Award. So, did either of these films? If imitation is the ultimate flattery, leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones. Now, I can't think of any films made since these two films that have had the same conceit. Can you? A man whose entire life is... I mean, have they done like the horror version of this? 
Oh, yeah. As a you know that thing where it's like we talked about. Oh, uh, uh, the edge of tomorrow is just the Groundhog Day with a high concept like sci-fi action setting. I mean, surely they've done this as a horror movie somewhere and I just can't remember the, the name of it. Yeah, it's like the ultimate, um, uh, what do you call those films where they film people? I don't know, it's a bit like Hostel or something but filmed. Oh, vo- voyeurism, some sort of yeah. sick sadistic voyeur. Oh, maybe Vacancy, you know, where Kate Beckinsale and one of the Wilsons check into a hotel and they're being filmed for snuff. But Manhunt, the video game, a guy is wandering around being filmed as he murders people. Um yeah, I guess we just have to say that I wouldn't say that these films inspired reality TV, but their legacy is social media influencers and reality TV. Like these films were ahead of the curve, predicting the hunger for ordinary people to become famous. Mm, I mean, they were, but like Network, I guess, you know, in 76 or whatever, was basically doing something similar in that they were trying to put, you know, onto TV, not 24 hours a day, but various uh, shocking real-life things. Yeah. Well, I guess the end result is that these films haven't left a legacy and The Truman Show, I guess, its legacy is that it's a really original version that no one's done better since. Totally, totally. All right. Now it's time for the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Ward. It sounds dodgy, but it's worth it. So Speed 2, it took Speed 1 and made it worse and didn't keep any of the best bits about it. So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity, Gabe. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to the Truman Show Ed TV. Now, they're both about an ordinary guy who finds himself filmed 24 hours a day in a, a prophetic version of reality TV. So which film to make a sequel to and what's our pitch to make it? Well, surely we're not making a sequel to Ed TV. <laughs> like- yeah, so Ed TV. It has, you know, Matthew McConaughey in a post-McConaughey ants uh, phase in his career. Uh, obviously, he's pop- very popular at the box office, but that film was a turkey in terms of the box office. So uh, I don't think there's a big hunger for that sequel, and we already have Instagram influencers around us now, so we don't need, I don't think, EdTV2. So The Truman Show. The film is loved. Oscar-nominated, huge box office, great cast. You cast same actors now and they're as famous, if not more, than they were then 22 years ago. The film ends when Truman opens a door with his famous farewell, closes it and walks away, and we never quite see what happens to his life outside, where now he will be just as famous, but now he knows about it. What do you think? Is that our sequel? Do we go? Do we pick it up from there, or do we do a sequel about? Because apparently, in the earlier script for the Truman Show, there was this idea that Christoph, the character, had where if they had a baby, they're going to follow the baby on a second channel, and it'd be a replication of how they followed Truman the first time round. Oh, what if you took that idea all the way to its logical conclusion, and everyone had their own channel running all twenty four seven? So it's basically Facebook and Instagram, right? Oh, okay. Did I just invent um, social media? You did. <laughs> you know, 12 years after. Okay, great. <sighs> um, you're right, though. Um, I mean, what do you think would be the logical, if you just step through the logical dramatic repercussions of how would Truman be able to live his life now that he stepped outside of the 
world? Like, would he be hounded 24-7? Or do you think maybe in 1998 you could naively assume that people would assume that he would be able to, you know, live a regular life? Well, apparently when Peter Weir made The Truman Show, he thought about people like Michael Jackson who had grown up with the media around them all the time. Now, unlike The Truman Show, they were aware of that, but they were kind of tortured by it. So if Truman has now gained awareness at the end of The Truman Show that his whole life was artificial, everyone around him from his parents to his friends to his wife were cast in those roles and now he meets, goes out and meets his uh, girlfriend, uh, I guess how is this different from just following any other celebrity who's really famous and gets hassled by the media a lot? So that's not particularly interesting. That's just the life, the torturous life for many people, like the royals, like Harry and Meghan Markle. So would he then seek revenge against- What? Yeah, his captors. Like he's now free. He was a captive. It's a bit like, you know, when someone gets out of jail after being falsely jailed for 25 years for murder and they didn't do it. So you get out. So do you forgive your captors? Do you- try and take your fame and turn to something positive, like you start up a uh, charity of some sort? Um, do you seek to do the same thing that was done to you? Like does he try and confront Christoph and um, and question like, you thought you were my father, my God, but you were actually my prison guard and I'll do the same thing to you? Or like, or does he just vanish and it becomes like castaway? <laughs> Basically, he just sort of seeks to rebuild himself. I mean, at the end, the film seems like it has so much potential to have a sequel if you follow the same character, but maybe it ended where it should have ended because yeah. his life just becomes like you and I. Yeah. Or does he become Ed TV? Does he voluntarily go, you know what, now that I'm aware of it, I, I'll, I'll accept the money and do it, but this time I'll do it knowingly. I mean, this movie was made, what, 22 years ago? What would, if he, say, disappeared, like you said, and no one could find him, but then the movie was about, he's like Sasquatch, you know, there's been a sighting or two of Truman and now 22 years later it's like trying to find Truman and uh, discover what those 22 years had been like and or, you know, is there is there a movie idea in that, you know, like desperately seeking Truman? <laughs> um, okay. So that becomes sort of like a film where someone's hiking in the wilderness to try and find this guy in a hut. So it's basically Apocalypse Now. <laughs> You're heading up the metaphorical river to try and find the guy who's now in solitude. Maybe. Alternatively, you could do a spin-off where basically it's just another show. It's back 22 years later, now with better cameras, better resolution. Uh, it's The Truman's Sun Show or something like that. Dude, Ben, look, if we're pitching that, it's just- the Tooman Show, and then Salt. <laughs> well, well played. You see, like we've replaced. Uh, yeah. So if if we're trying to do a a spin off, maybe that's our pitch to these guys. You know, on the on the whiteboard, we cross out the various letters and turn it into Two Man. The trouble is, we're looking across the table. A studio executive we're pitching this to. So far, I feel like we're kind of drowning here. We've got to, we've got to choose a lane. So let's just say I reckon we have to basically lean in hard to what made the, fa- the first film famous, and that is someone doesn't know their life is being filmed. So we do two things. He gets out and then he discovers 
he's free, but he's not. You see? It's like Westworld season three or something. It's a fake or Inception. It's a fake reality on a fake reality. Oh, okay. I haven't seen Westworld season three, so thanks for ruining that for me, mate. Oh. Um. <laughs> but it could be Inception, for example, where it's a dream and a dream and a dream. He gets out, he thinks he's free, and that turns out to be essentially the second season, which is the next 30 years of his life. An even bigger soundstage. I like that thing that you touched on earlier, like um, where Truman in a different version of the, an unproduced version of the movie, a script scene that was never shot, walks past a crime and doesn't intervene. I like the idea of a, a reality show that followed this person who didn't know that they were being filmed that continually set up sort of these fucked up moral conundrums for them, which they kept failing at. It's like that scene in The Dark Knight with those two boats in, on the river in Chicago where basically it's a test as to whether who will pull a bomb and uh, explode the ship first? Will it be the criminals or will it be the snooty, you know, middle-class uh, residents of the town? And the test is, doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or educated, we all have the same moral choices to make. Yeah, that's right. In this case, you throw those like some sort of university college exercise at Truman throughout his entire life as basically elaborate. Yeah, and you are constantly disappointed that, people's behaviour when they feel like they're not being watched and judged is much more um, disappointing than you might otherwise think. Yeah, look, I think we're going to lean to something. I'm going to put forward this. Either we follow another a reboot of the show where they take some other kid and unknowingly uh, he grows up as a TV celebrity. So basically different character, same circumstance, different showrunner. Or we do a reality on a reality or unreality built on an unreality where he thinks he's free and transpires he's not and perhaps goes mad trying to decipher between them. So it's basically, it almost might become more of a Matrix-style science fiction film. Mm. And at the very, very end, he does discover that he is in another fake world because, of course, he would never know once he walks outside that bubble what is fake, right? Because he doesn't have any reference points to that. So they could contain him in a different way. He would walk out into what is basically a spaceship. Oh. And he, he'd know nothing else, right? Oh, well, while we're busy trashing the legacy of the Truman Show with this sequel, what if, yeah, spaceship, what if it turns out that even beyond the uh, mechanism of the reality show than the other layer of reality show when he thought he got out was yet another third layer, which was that aliens is just watching us because fuck it, why not? We're, we're going to write this thing under a pseudonym anyway because, God damn it, who wants to be the guys to make a silly genre sequel to The Truman Show? <laughs> All right, so we need a sequel title here. What's it going to be? Fuck it, we should just keep going with The, the Truman Show. <laughs> like, why not? It's right there. It's right there and it's stupid. Let's lean into it. Okay, and uh, that's how you make a sequel to The Truman Show. With pseudonyms. <laughs> All right. That brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode so, sound so freaking good. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week online? Well, I presume they're watching me anyway on my 24-hour-a-day show uh, that I don't know about. Um, so just keep watching. And I'm sorry for those things that I did while I thought I wasn't being watched. <laughs> 
Uh, you can also find him as at Gabe Dalric on Twitter. Oh, thanks, Ben. <laughs> I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find this podcast and my other podcasts in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you, as always, folks, for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please leave a review online and share the word with your mates. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. And Ben, if I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. 